We've been in this series uh, over the past few weeks, really talking about uh, how to live with joy in the middle of difficult circumstances, not in spite of them. How we can have joy even when things are really, really hard. And what is the key to that? And Paul throughout Philippians has been displaying and is teaching that if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you actually have a source of joy in Christ um, through your relationship with him that makes it possible for not only for you to have joy in, in very difficult circumstances, but it changes the landscape of how you relate to the world entirely. And specifically what we're gonna talk about this morning is in our relationships with one another, because he says that right there in verse five, in your relationships with one another. Our relationships, because of the joy that we have in Christ, because of the resources that we have through this relationship with Jesus, our relationships as Christians to ourselves, to one another, to the world, they ought to look different. Uh, last week at the very you know, first part of this passage, uh, verses one to four, he talks about that uh, apart from Christ, that basically we do everything out of this place of, of selfish ambition or vain conceit, which are just two words to kind of sum up uh, or ways to express pride. We do things from pride, which, which doesn't deliver the joy that it promises. Pride is eventually a joy killer. It's a community killer. It's a relationship killer. Um, and he's saying we've actually been liberated from doing a life of selfish ambition and vain conceit, living our lives from that place, and actually liberated into this new way to live, which is called inhumility. That's what he says. Inhumility, right? Value others above yourselves in verse three. We've been set free to love humbly, and that that can now become the baseline for our relationships with one another and how we do our lives in the world. You know, Jesus said uh, that the world would know that you belong to me. People would know that you belong to me, that you're in me based on the way that you love one another. That would be the evidence. They will know that you're Christians by your love, not they will know you are Christians by what you know or what you claim to know, right? But by how you love. And that love, if it's gonna be a love that's in him, it's a love that's marked by humility because that's what Christ's love is marked by, it's marked by humility. We can love that way because we are loved that way. And this passage that Janie just read, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, is, is probably one of the most clear, um, succinct descriptions in all of scripture about who Jesus is and about the self-emptying love of Jesus. Um, I think you could make the argument that you, you, you almost have the entire gospel right here in these five verses. Uh, it's kind of like, it's like the Mount Everest of theology. And I feel a little silly, frankly, uh, only dedicating us dedicating one sermon to it because all of our redemption really finds uh, it, it's, its roots in what is being said here. Because this passage talks about who Jesus is, that he's fully God and he's fully man. It talks about what he's done, but specifically what I want us to really focus in on this morning is about this idea of the mindset that he did all of this from. Because that's what Paul, he's saying a lot of things about Jesus here, about what he did and who he was, 
But he starts this whole section by saying, in your relationship with one another, I, I want you to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul is really specifically concerned for them to know not just what Jesus did, but why. What was on his mind? Or maybe, you know, like Janie read Song of Solomon, who was on his mind? And how does knowing what was on his mind and who was on his mind affect our mindset, right? Because he did, Jesus did what he did from someplace, and it wasn't selfish ambition or vain conceit. There was a motivation for all of his activity, for all of this making himself nothing and taking on the nature of a servant. So let's talk about this mindset. And I'm, I'm, I've got one point uh, this morning, and it's not the only thing that could be said out of this passage, but I've, I've titled this one point, Gospel Inception, okay? And really what I mean by that is, is, is how do we have the mind of Christ in our relationships? Because that's what Paul's trying to get him to understand. Paul's saying all this about Jesus because he's saying that should affect our mindset as we think about our relationships. So gospel inception, right? So if you've known me, keep hitting the podium. If you've known me for any period of time, you know that I love the film uh, Inception. It probably is, it's gotta be in my top three. It might be my top or has been for a period of time. It's one of Christopher Nolan's films. And the film, it's hard to sum up. I was trying to think about this. How do you sum up what Inception is as a film? It's really all about the power of how an idea can take hold of the mind to the point to where it reshapes everything about somebody, about their future, what they choose to do, what they don't choose to do. One of the quotes in that film, it's a famous quote, he says, uh, Cobb, one of the main characters, says an idea is like a virus it's resilient, it's highly contagious. The smallest seed of an idea can grow. It can grow to define you or destroy you. All of us uh, have some degree or some experience with this idea of inception just by the fact that we grew up uh, in families. We came from family systems. All of us have had ideas or values or experiences, right, that were that were given to us, that were incepted into us. They started something in us. And those, those experiences or those ideas or those values have, have grown in us to define us, sometimes in very, very beautiful ways uh, and sometimes in very, very difficult ways, right? Many of you are in therapy because of bad inceptions by your family, right? I was thinking about uh, good examples of Inception. I, it got me thinking about another one of my favorite films, Braveheart, where William Wallace, you know, freedom, right? He's, he's committed to the freedom of the Scots and he's willing to go lay down his life, humble himself, lay down his life for the freedom of the Scots. And his relationship with Robert LaBruce in that film, uh, who was a king and kind of a lord that was trying to become king, who at the beginning of the film was obviously very selfishly ambitious. He was a man who was seeking the throne. I want to be in charge, right? But by the end of the film, what do we see is we see him taking Wallace's heart and Wallace's position, right? Wallace incepted him <laughs> with his love uh, for the Scots to the point to where he started living more like Wallace than he was living like himself at the beginning of the film. 
a good example. A bad example uh, was I watched the HBO documentary with Tiger Woods uh, this week, this two-part documentary. Uh, Earl Woods is a bad inceptor, right? Uh, his father, from a very early age, began to kind of hardwire him through ideas and through practices and things uh, so that he would become who he eventually became. And yes, that was you know, very successful and at the same time, very tragic. It's inception, the power of something to take hold of the mind to the point that it reshapes everything about you. Well, the gospel inception that Paul understands and that has happened for us as Christians, it's not just an idea. You know, it's not just this kind of like slogan uh, that, that I've, I've adopted and this is a part of my life. It's bigger than an idea. It's bigger than an example that has been given to us. In 1 Corinthians 2, uh, it says that I've already been given the mind of Christ, right? So Paul's saying here, I, I want you to have this same mindset, but Paul's telling the Corinthian church, you have the mindset. You have it. You already have the mind of Christ if you're in Christ. Scripture also says that if you're in him, you've been given a new heart, Ezekiel talks about, and a new spirit, John's gospel talks about, that you're actually the temple of the living God now. So you've been given a new mind, you've been given a new spirit, you've been given a new heart, you're the place that the Holy Spirit dwells, which means this, effectively, uh, the inception that's happened to me is, is I have this entirely new nature now. I have a new self. I am a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come, right? Which means I actually now am able to love in this humble way. That I can love in a way that's not constantly pursuing my own glory or using my position for my own advantage. But rather I can use my position for others' advantage like Jesus did for me, and I'm able to actually bring glory to God, not just bring glory to myself. I've been set free because of this gospel inception to live like this. So if that's true, why is Paul writing this to them? Well, I think Paul understands something. Uh, pain makes us oftentimes forget what's most true about us. Paul, I think in this section, is he's really trying to, and I'll use the word re-incept them, Reincept the Philippians now with this truth about who Jesus is. He's trying to, if you remember in the film, you can't accomplish inception until you get to the third layer of the dream. It means literally I've got to get it way, way, way deep down inside of you. Because everything that he's teaching them right now about Jesus, this isn't the first time they've heard this. I say reincept because they already knew all of this stuff about Jesus, right? Like a lot of people, a lot of scholars actually believe that this little section um, from 6 to 11 isn't even really originally Paul's writing, but he's literally quoting or stating a creed or a poem that was in practice already in the church. They're just, he's saying, hey, remember this thing that we already all know about Jesus? Let me remind you of that truth, right? I want to reincept you with that truth because Paul understands something that there's actually a difference between just knowing something and having that thing begin to transform your life. Those are two different things. I can know a lot of things that are good, but those things may not transform my life. Like I knew 
on Sunday night that eating, uh, you know, a five-alarm burger at Melrose with loaded fries at 10 p.m. Uh, was not a good decision, but I still did it, right? I knew that wasn't, wasn't a good decision, uh, but I, I made the decision anyway. Paul understands that I can know things, right? But those things may not transform my life. They have to get deep. And Paul knew that these, these realities, these truths that he's telling back to them, these truths about who Jesus was, they needed to be taken in deep. They needed to be experienced because if they were, they would shape the collective future of this community, right? If this mindset, this, this you know, I guess I should just say something briefly about mindset. We, we think of mindset purely as mental, but those words that are used in the Greek um, refer to not just your mind, but your heart, really like your, even your bowels, like your gut, right? If the, if the gut of Christ, right, the mindset of Christ and how he related to us would become the way that we relate to one another, he knew if that happened, their collective future would be remarkably different. So what does this tell us about how Christ related to us, right? How can we be reincepted? We could sum up verses six through eight by simply saying this. Jesus isn't about seeking his own glory. That's how he relates to us. Jesus doesn't approach us trying to take something from us. He approaches us trying to give something to us, right? Because he already had glory. John 17 says that he had glory before the creation of the world. And in that high priestly prayer in John 17, He's, he's consumed with the idea of, of sharing that glory, right? I'm not here to get something from you. I'm not trying to get glory from you. I already have glory. I'm here to share my glory with you, right? He refused to act self-centered. He refused to be selfishly ambitious or vain. And as, as perfect triune God, he was the only one who had the right to act that way, and he didn't, right? He was humble. That's how he related to us. And he knew that if we were ever going to share in his glory, that the only way that was going to be possible was what we see laid out here. He was going to have to die to himself. He was going to not have to use his position of equality with God to his own advantage, but use it to our advantage. He was gonna have to humble himself. And the book Hebrews tells us why he did that. It says that it was the joy set before him that he endured the cross, right? Scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. It was the joy set before him. You hear what he's saying there is he's saying this. His joy is us sharing in his glory. Right? I want you to share in my glory. And the only way that's going to happen is for me to do this, to not use my position for my advantage, to make myself nothing, to take on the very nature of a servant, to be made in human likeness, to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's how it's going to happen. And that's my mindset. That's my heart. Well, he says in John 17, I have given them the glory that you gave me. You hear what he is? He's a sharer, not a hoarder. That they may be one as we are one. Unity, right? One spirit, one mind, one heart. 
I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. And when they're unified, what will happen? Then the world will know that you sent me and that I have loved them even as you have loved me. What's, what's, the, what's underneath it all? What, what's the basis of their unity? Is this love. I want you to experience my humble love as, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So this is where the sermon goes from like maybe me just preaching to me more kind of confessing about my meditations on this passage. Because I kept reading and rereading and rereading this passage this week. And I, I had this thought. If you've never been to church or if you've never um, been exposed to who Jesus is, and you read this and you realize this is the kind of God he is. This might be really revolutionary to you. Like if you're hearing this for the first time, that, that, that Jesus, that, that who, who is God, right? And who had every right to use his position for his own advantage, he didn't. But he humbled himself and he took on flesh and he became a servant and he went to the cross and died and he did that not only to save us from sin's penalty, which scripture says is, is death and eternal separation from God. Yes, he saved us from that, but he's actually saved us not just from something, but into something, which is this new life now. I'm, I'm set free to this new life in him. If you're hearing that for the first time, that might sound really revolutionary because that's different than every other major world religion, right? Every other major world religion basically says, you're the one who has to humble yourself. You're the one who has to serve. You're the one who has to get it right for, in order for God to love you. And this is completely inverted. Saying, no, that's, that's Jesus did all that so that you could love him, right? It's like Jesus is the ultimate undercover boss. I don't know if you ever watched that show, Undercover Boss. Is it even still on? I don't know. I love that show. Uh, but he's the ultimate undercover boss in this sense, right? Because in that show, usually what happens is the bosses are these like, you know, high executives kind of up in their ivory tower running the company. They don't know what's going on with the little plebeians who are down there working in their factories. And so they go to hair and makeup and they put a, a beard on them and they make them look different. And then they, you know, send them down to the, to the factory line and they have to make tires for a day or contact lenses or whatever they're making, right? And then in the process, the, the boss realizes like, wow, I'm really disconnected from the people and I don't really understand their plight, right? And me taking this kind of humble position has kind of opened my eyes to that reality, to my blind spots. And so the boss get, gets humbled by the process, right? And then decides to be really gracious. You know, he calls the lady up who, you know, can't afford to send her kids to college and like gives them free tuition and all this. And everybody's like, oh, the boss, right? That's not Jesus. Jesus isn't that undercover boss. He wasn't disconnected uh, from what was going on with his workers. He, he knew exactly the state of the people down on the factory floor. He, he understood that they had already been incepted by something called sin and that if that was ever going to be triumphed over, 
if they were gonna be incepted by something else, it was gonna only be by his sacrifice. And so Jesus didn't come down and get humble. Jesus is humble. Jesus isn't disconnected from what's going on with the people beneath him. He knew exactly what we needed. And out of his humility, because he is humility, he came for us. If you're hearing that for the first time, that may be revolutionary to you. But if you've been at church, if you're like me, this is what concerned me this week. Similar to the Philippians, what I'm saying right now is, is not something I've never heard before. And probably if you've been in church, what I'm saying right now is something you've heard before. You know who Jesus is. You know that he was fully God and fully man. You've maybe accepted that. You know what he did. But the question I kept coming back to for myself this week is, is if I know all of that, then why doesn't my life look more like that? Why is my life still marked by selfish ambition and vain conceit? By trying to find my joy through like comparing to others and how I stack up. Why isn't my life marked more by the humility that I see in Jesus? I mean, I'm, I'm the pastor of the church. I mean, shouldn't, I've studied this, right? Like, shouldn't my life look differently than it does? Like, even when I'm, I said this last week, even sometimes when I'm, I'm doing acts, humble acts of valuing other people over myself or taking interest in others, I can still be doing those from a place of internal pride, like I'm the kind of person who does these sorts of things for people, right? Why, I just kept coming back to why is this humble mindset so difficult to maintain? So there's a lot of things um, that could be said to answer that question. There actually are more than one answer. Um, but I've only got one for you, uh, and it came through meditating on that for me. And I'm going to tell you why, I think, uh, at least for me. And it's this. It's because I can't simply think myself into that kind of humble love. I have to be re-loved into that kind of humble love. It's not just a matter of me thinking rightly about who Jesus is or what Jesus did. I know plenty of people who have great theology and are miserable people and miserable lovers. It's not about me just thinking rightly about being loved. I'm not in a relationship with my knowledge about Jesus. I'm in a relationship with Jesus. It's the difference between knowing about who Jesus is and what he did and knowing him. It's deeper than just a matter of thinking myself into that place, thinking differently. I actually have to be loved differently to love like this. John 15 says, remain in my love apart from remaining in me, you can't do anything. He doesn't say remain in your knowledge of my love, he says, remain in my love. And I think when we read that sentence and we say, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, the mindset word is just tricky in our English language because it's not deep enough, right? It's a, it's a very surface level 
word that we can often just think about almost entirely in the realm of like, that's an exercise of reason or kind of men mental thinking, right? And so if it's just about me thinking myself into being humble, right? Uh, then, it, then here's how it goes. It says, it, it kind of goes like this. This is what I said. Jesus loved you this way. So, hey, think about this. Jesus loved you this way. So you should love other people this way. So now I need to go try and love other people this way. Now, I'm not saying that that's untrue. It's just not enough to go do it. It's not not untrue, it's just not enough to go do it. It's not the whole truth. Because that line of thinking is just simply seeing Jesus as this example, you know, a model to aspire to, right? Man, look what he did, I, I, I hope I can be like him. It's seeing him as a model or an example to kind of ascend to, not as the source to live this way. Like the, if you get into the real language there, when it says have the same mindset, it says, let this mind be in you. Let his mind incept your mind, right? Let this mind be in you. Because the whole truth is this, that I can know what's good and what to do and not to do. I mean, there are plenty of people who do a lot of good things uh, who don't even believe that Jesus exists. The whole truth is I can know what's good to do and what not to do, and I can still choose at times what's not good, right? That's what Romans 7 is all about. Paul's talking about there's this battle, this double-minded battle going on between my flesh and my spirit to where sometimes I even know what I'm supposed to do and I can't do it, right? It's like gravity, like, ah, I'm fighting against it. I even know what's good, but I can't choose what's good, right? And why it's so important that we understand this is that Paul isn't saying, um, hey, just think yourself into that humble love. Remember the, the WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do? Yeah, just think about what Jesus would do and then go do that. That's not what he's talking about because that all depends on you. Jesus is your model, go do it. What he's saying is this, what did Jesus do for you? Not what would he do, what did he do for you? And what did or does that do for you now, right? So not WWJD, it's WDJD, or I wrote down WDTDFY. What did, what did I say there? What did Jesus do for you and why does that matter? <laughs> you print that on a bracelet, right? I'm gonna print those bracelets for us. It's not WWJD, it's what did Jesus do for you? And it's in experiencing that love in Christ and letting it, letting it get deep, letting it incept our hearts and our minds that we actually begin to walk in this new self that we have in him. It's that place that, that in him we actually are humility because he is humility. We can become servant lovers because he is a servant lover. The focus isn't on our ability to keep thinking right. It's about Jesus' ability to love us into a different way of life. And when we're loved like this, you know, there's this whole stanza at the end from 9 to 11 where it talks about every knee bowing. When I, 
when I'm loved by Jesus as he loves me, right? It, it bows me. It, it humbles me, right? Because he's the, he's the one who loves like this when I can't love like this. He's the one who loves me like this. He bows me down. He, he lovingly lowers me into a posture now to where I actually, because I've received his love, I can love with his love, right? So just one practical thing uh, to close us. Um, how, how, do I, how do I continually experience this gospel inception or this re-inception? And I think you have to go back up. We didn't read these verses this morning, but to the very first um, two verses of this, uh, this section of Philippians. And um, Paul is really displaying it here uh, and, and kind of holding up Jesus and saying, I want you to look at him and I want, you to, I want you to see him. I want you to contemplate his glory, like 2 Corinthians 3 says, because when you contemplate the Lord's glory, you are transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Behold him, right? When I behold him, I actually become like him. So he's holding up Jesus here in verses five through 11, and what happens is this, what we experience, or what he says you experience in verses one to two. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. What do we experience when we hold Jesus up and when we look at the humble uh, non-advantage using Jesus, who servant uh, loves us into his glory. What we experience when we see him and we behold him like that is we get encouragement from being united with him. We get comfort from being loved by him. We actually begin to share in his spirit, right? We actually experience tenderness and compassion, which if I'm gonna love like Jesus loved in this world, if I'm gonna be affected by his love and love other people this way, I'm gonna need courage to do that. I'm gonna need to be encouraged because if I'm gonna live a life that doesn't use my position for my own advantage, but for other people, it means you're gonna get taken advantage of. It means you're gonna be misunderstood from time to time. It means you're going to need uh, things like where it says comforted by his love, you're gonna need to be comforted and trust that all the promises of future glory that are promised to us as believers, right, are true when you live in a culture that basically lives on scarcity and says, get yours now, this life is all there is. If you're going to live humbly like this, you're gonna need comfort from his love. You'll need courage to live this way because loving and living this way oftentimes will mean loving in a way that may never get reciprocated by somebody. You may not get the love in return, right? I need to share in his spirit because I need all of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I need his spirit in my relationship to serve others the way that he serves. I need tenderness and compassion from him because if I'm gonna love this way, it's gonna mean I'm gonna suffer. I have to experience his heart for me, not just know about his heart for me, experience his heart for me, to have his heart for others. So 
This is who he is for us. This is your Jesus. Uh, this is the one who loves you this way. And would you, would you let him incept your life? <laughs> would you contemplate his glory? Will you be comforted by his love? Will you be encouraged through your union with him? Will you share in his spirit and take his mind, his tenderness, his compassion? Uh, because it will make us into a community of great lovers because it will transform us into his image. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you. Um, uh, thank you that just like inception, we, we can't get that idea into ourselves by ourselves. We need help. <laughs> and you knew um, that we would never... Uh, in our, in our own selves be able to take on your mindset. You, you had to do something supernatural, and you have. You've given us your mind. You've given us your heart. You've given us your spirit, and you've set us free to, to be people who don't use our position for our own advantage. But those who can take on the nature of a servant because you took on the nature of a servant, to take on humility because you humbled yourself. Um, to even take up our cross because you took up yours. And so um, may we look deeply into you uh, this week. May that get deep into our hearts and our minds and may we experience the freedom uh, that is only had uh, in being loved by you. In your name, amen.